Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question Community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCom, with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering, where the question is asked through original arts and music, as well as thought-provoking presentations. This is Frederick Tamagi. Okay, so allow me to, to start to conclude with one last provocation. This provocation is different than the others. First, because this provocation was presented to me without warning by the popular media. Second, because the provocation was completed by this community, specifically at last month's gathering, where David so ably presented his thoughts about the transcendent power of words. And third, because synchronicity, which we have also presented in this community, is a beautiful mystery that just won't go away. I think that this provocation was a gift of synchronicity. You judge for yourself. This is Matthew and Tersus Engelhardt, owners of a very successful California chain of plant-based restaurants called Cafe Gratitude. Matthew and Tersus have been vegetarians for 40 years and full-on vegans for the last 11 years. In addition to their restaurant business, the Engelharts own and operate a sustainable organic farm called, uh, ironically, Bee Love. About a year ago, in a blog post, they announced that they had returned to a dietary lifestyle that included meat and other animal products. Many of these animals were being raised right on their bee love farm. Now, in their blog post, they represented their decision, not just as an evolution in their dietary life, but as a revelation about the role of healthy and humane animal consumption in a global sustainability model. Now, that's a controversial position, of course. Their decision to move away from veganism unleashed a firestorm of criticism and even hatred from their many loyal customers animal rights activists, and the global vegan community. The intense reaction manifested in every kind of attack, from calls urging them to sell or even close their business, to actual death threats. Okay, death threats being uttered online and through anonymous notes and packages left at their farm. Now, the news article about these latest threats was published just last week, and that's how I found out about the Engelharts. The article was also a bit of a revelation for me specifically about the passion of veganism. Now, before I encountered the news article about the Engelharts, I had started gathering some images for this presentation. It takes a while to, to pick the right ones. Amongst those images was this quote from Dr. Gary Francione, a prominent legal scholar and one of the world's foremost animal rights activists. Now, I had pretty much decided not to use this quote because it was too specific to the vegan perspective of love. Um, and it was too specific in order to make the cut for the presentation. But when I read about the Engelharts and the intense condemnation they faced, 
I realized that this quotation about the meaning of love was really important. And here's why. Dr. Francione is considered one of the fathers of the abolitionist theory of animal rights, which basically argues that all sentient or self-aware beings, like animals, share the right to life with us and should not be treated as property or product. Dr. Francione, he is also a committed vegan, by the way, and other abolitionists believe that all animals, although not persons in the strict sense, possess an inherent personhood, as well as an ability to perceive and even understand what it is to suffer. Strong animal rights activists maintain that it is this innate personhood that makes the production and consumption of any animal-based product inherently immoral. In fact, the production and consumption of animal-based food products is the ground zero of the abolitionist cause. And not surprisingly, ethical veganism is the abolitionist's most passionate expression of their cause. Now, to be fair, there's clearly other reasons, apart from the love of animals, why people become vegetarians and vegans. I know that, of course. Sometimes it's simply about personal health. But to be equally fair, a great many vegans view their lifestyle as an important expression of love for another living, self-aware being with whom they share the earth. According to this quote, ethical vegans really do understand love. Okay, you're saying that the rest of the non-vegan world is confused, but they understand. And I guess if one considers themselves a true lover of animals, the good doctor conveys a certain logic, doesn't he? But like the other simple if-then love formulas that we've encountered tonight, is there another layer, another dimension to Dr. Francione's position that desimplifies his bulletproof understanding of vegan love. By the way, I checked, desimplify is not an actual word, okay? So please avoid using it in conversations or you'll be embarrassed. You can use it here if you like. Now last month, David provided that new dimension when he spoke about the power of words in the life of plants. These are some of the scientific experiments he shared with us. I'm paraphrasing David, so, okay. When plants are subjected to extended periods of absolute silence, they tend to do less well than when sounds are present, okay? They don't do well in silence. When plants are exposed to recorded or electronic sounds, they tend to do better, okay? Regardless of whether the sounds themselves are pleasant or unpleasant. It's pretty interesting, it's just sound, okay? But when plants are verbally praised, or affirmed during the growing cycle, they frequently thrive in a visible, measurable way. And when plants are verbally abused or condemned during the growing cycle, they often become stunted and sickly, okay? So when people speak to them, that's when they change. I'll let you reflect on what these experiments suggest about the life of plants, but I want to share some additional science while you do that, okay? A couple of days ago, I uh, discovered a really interesting short, video. There's Puppy Monkey Baby again. Again, please bear with me. Um, I'm not going to use the word hate. I don't love YouTube. Monica Bermelin is about to perform an unusual experiment. Her patient today is a houseplant. The slightest touch makes its leaves spring shut. 
Normally, that's a defense against insects, not hospital staff. The anesthetist is going to try to stop the mimosa's signature leaf movement. She's giving it a drink of ether, an early knockout drug used in humans. After an hour, it's time to test the result. There's not a flicker of movement. The mimosa seems to be out cold. In humans, ether works to stop nerve cells from transmitting signals. But a plant has no nerves. So why does the ether work? The answer might lie elsewhere in Germany, at the University of Freiburg where Professor Edgar Wagner is conducting an experiment on electricity. It was long thought that plants do not use electrical signaling, but that thinking has changed. Professor Wagner will demonstrate how electrical signals pass through a plant. Electrodes connect the plant to a computer, able to record the faintest of electrical signals. This plant is in for a shock. The professor burns a leaf. and the computer comes alive. The injured plant is producing a definite electrical signal. A 50 millivolt charge races across its body and down its stem, passing through the same tiny tubes as its sap. It surges forward like a human nerve signal, though the signal moves more slowly than it does in humans. The plant shows a definite electrical reaction to the flame. Likewise with the mimosa, tests suggest that electrical signals are what trigger the plant to flinch. When the mimosa was treated with ether, it stopped transmitting these signals and went to sleep. These are just two examples of electricity in plants. Pretty interesting, eh? You probably know where I'm going with this already. Um, but let's reorganize this provocation for the sake of our big question. Do we really understand love? Whatever side of the holistic food fight you're on, because I don't know if there's any vegans or vegetarians in the room here, okay? Uh, it's not difficult to consider, or it's difficult not to consider, these controversial scientific possibilities. When plants are isolated from the sounds of existence around them, they often don't flourish but appear to respond positively if any sounds of existence, pleasant or not, are present in their environment. When human voices, instead of recorded or electronic sounds, are present, many plants demonstrate an ability to distinguish between spoken nurture or spoken abuse, and they respond accordingly. They respond, they respond to us. Now, plants appear to have some practical internal network for electrical impulses that react to external stimuli. This internal network can be desensitized 
using a conventional anesthetic. And of course, the one that they used uh, in the YouTube, they said, actually deadens nerve impulses. Okay? Interesting. Now, sincere, committed vegans believe that their lifestyle is an expression of the foundational truth that animals possess an innate personhood. And in this way, they sincerely believe that they really do understand love because you don't kill and eat a person that you love, right? But what happens to their understanding of love if there's a possibility that plant life is also sentient, self-aware, sensitive to the vibrations of environment, and able to recognize human communication? What happens to their understanding of love when electrical impulses passing through a plant's internal network might contain a message of suffering or even pain? Now, would they shake off this possibility because plants have no conventional neural capability and can't really perceive suffering or cry out in pain? How might they react if they were told of present-day indigenous cultures that celebrate and experience the life of plants in an audible dimension. Okay, all over the world, uh, there are indigenous peoples through ceremonies, right? Uh, through, through herbal medicine, right? Actually hear plants, okay? Not here to judge that or, or verify that, but it needs to be considered, right? Okay, I know that this sounds a little judgy of vegans, not trying to be, because you know that's not my purpose here. My purpose is always to provoke a question. In this case, the question is, if plants share important living characteristics with animals, is veganism an accurate expression of the meaning of love? Dr. Francione's formula seems so simple and true at first reading. It's, it's a formula that, that's powerful enough to inspire a lifelong commitment for believers and even death threats for non-believers. And yet, when this new knowledge about the life of plants is included in the vegan formula for love, Simple and true are no longer compatible concepts. And vegans could be faced with an immense complexity in which they must now search for a new understanding of love. They may also have to search for a new unknown source of food, neither animal nor plant. It's incredible to think about it that way, isn't it? This is Joanna Drummond. So, um... This one is just about uh, times of difficulty, I suppose, and it's called Shadow Song. And we have a unique situation here where the words are actually behind me on a screen. So the uh, May What Follows You Soon Be Done, May What Follows You Meet the Sun is a sing-along. If you'd like to join us, feel free.
provocation about an unsolvable dilemma for vegans is also a grand metaphor for our own personal struggle to understand love. Many of us spend our entire lives trying to understand love from the inside of a formula, only to find out that new experience, new knowledge, new inspiration from outside of the formula renders that formula inadequate or baffling or sometimes completely wrong. You would think that new experience, knowledge, and inspiration would encourage us to seek new understanding, but often we are just left broken, disillusioned, and discouraged by the formulas of love. It speaks to the unique power of the world to control our understanding of love when we buy into the belief that we have failed and not the formula. I myself uh, confess 12 such failures tonight to understand love, okay? All true, by the way. And why is this fascinating vegan dilemma such a grand metaphor for our personal struggle to, to understand love? Well, of course, because it's a metaphor for mistaking passion for love, okay? Like, did the vegan death threats give that one away? But even more, because it's a unique metaphor for the ultimate trap of believing that love may be understood by a formula. The ultimate trap of if-then. It's the ultimate trap because it made an oversimplified, corrupt expression of love synonymous with starvation. And you know that I don't simply mean starvation of our body. I mean starvation of our purpose. I mean starvation of our soul. Love has been called the greatest power on earth. There are even some that call love the greatest power in the universe. That's perhaps another question for another gathering, but if love is in fact the greatest anything, we do need to question whether or not we diminish love by simplifying it into a formula. We also need to question whether or not we ourselves are diminished by that same process. Not sure if I succeeded, but my purpose tonight was to provoke you to revisit your own understanding of love. I wanted to raise the possibility that perhaps we're not really capable of understanding love's meaning without first understanding its magnitude. I'll leave you now with one last surprising metaphor for the magnitude of love. Diamonds. Now, diamonds are considered a symbol for love, I checked. <clears throat> and the symbol is mostly about the enduring, indestructible beauty of love. But the metaphor okay, of the diamond is different from the symbol. Diamonds are also massively complex prisms, refracting and reflecting light through meticulously crafted cut facets. The science of diamond facets, and it is a science, is based on maximizing both the reflective power of the diamond, which they call the brilliance, and the refractive power of the diamond, the fire. Okay, that's why there's so many colors. There's white light and multicolored light. The synergy of brilliance and fire is what makes diamonds a unique treasure. Each individual facet of a diamond is a separate reflective and refractive medium. So for a moment, okay, just try and imagine just one facet of a diamond and a single beam of light penetrating that facet, okay? Now the average area of a diamond facet, this is not a math test, is 25 square millimeters. That's the area of one small facet. 
the average beam of visible light is five square nanometers, okay? A nanometer is one billionth of a millimeter. It's pretty small. Can you try to get your head around this incredible ratio, right? One billionth of a millimeter and a facet is 25 square millimeters. And this is like a little bit of, of an image of one beam of light, but it's obviously much smaller than that. It means that roughly five billion individual beams of light could enter a single facet of a diamond from just one single angle of incidence, okay? So picture this, this is the angle of incidence here. Five billion individual beams of light can enter one facet from that angle of incidence. Now, if you try to do the math for this, incorporating all possible angles of incidence, okay? Because this angle can change, okay? So there's a math problem here, okay? Incorporating all possible angles of incidence on every possible axis. This gets really crazy. What it ends up with is a functionally uncountable number, okay? It is so big, it is functionally uncountable for just one facet. By the way, I checked this out with my son, who is a medical physicist. Um, I thought about it, and I had a long conversation, and I checked this out, and this actually is true. These uncountable light beams, okay, would then be refracted and hence multiplied by at least a factor of seven, which is the number of colors in the visible spectrum. The refracted light then exits through other facets of the diamond as new multicolored beams of light. This exit results in an even bigger uncountable number of beams. Okay, you with me so far? This is the centenary diamond. Okay, uh, it's 274 carats or 54 grams. It's the sixth largest cut diamond in the world, but it's 247 individual facets are the most in history. So to calculate how many beams of light could penetrate and flow through all the facets of this diamond, you simply have to multiply uncountable by 247. It's the best real world metaphor for the magnitude of love that I could find. Now, if love is indeed the greatest power on earth or even the universe, we can't be faulted for wanting to understand and experience such power. The entire history of mankind is a history of attempts to reach that understanding through simple formulas, quick judgments about what is and what is not love. And whether it's the history of mankind or just our own personal history, those simple formulas, though numerous and seductive, always fail to deliver in the face of new experience knowledge or inspiration. Is it possible that the lesson of these failures is that the greatness of love, the magnitude of love, cannot be understood by a simple if-then formula any more than the unmatched brilliance of the centenary diamond can be produced by a single beam of light in a single facet? In this metaphor, there are as many beams of light as we have thoughts, experiences, knowledge, inspiration, failures, Okay, and yes, questions. In this metaphor, there is no way to fail because there is no formula. In this metaphor, we are the uncountable beams of light and love is the diamond. The only way we can understand the diamond is to penetrate it with all of the light that we have and then be willing to let the diamond produce the brilliance and make the fire. 
this could really be the way to understand love. And even though I stated several times that we can't do it, this could be the way that we put lightning in a bottle. Well, thank you for being so patient and listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the Question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary starting at 7. You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCom. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions.